500 years ago this Tuesday, nailed the 95 theses to the castle door in Wittenberg. Most consider this, the, this event as the start of the Reformation. Uh, Martin Luther initially wanted to change the church or reform the church from the inside out, but as time went along, it became very apparent that the Roman Catholic Church would not change. Pope would not repent, and there was not, that was not going to happen. Eventually, Martin Luther was brought up on charges from the Roman Catholic Church, and they called him a heretic in his writings, her heretical. Martin Luther faced the possibility of being burned at the stake, and while we saw in Sunday school today, Martin Luther is not a perfect man, he's a man nonetheless, and God used him to start a great work. He faced a trial at the Diet of Worms in 1521, and his final words of defense at that trial are very fitting for our passage today. He faced the real possibility of death being burned at the stake, is what was the normal process of getting rid of Herod heretics if they did not recant their teaching. He stated these words, here it is, plain and unvarnished. Unless I am convinced of error by the testimony of scripture, since I put no trust in unsupported authority of pope or councils, since it is plain that they have often erred and often contradict themselves by manifest reasoning, I stand convinced by the scriptures to which I have appealed. My conscience is taken captive by God's word. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to act against conscience is neither safe for us nor open to us. Wow, what a man, right? God was working. Luther committed, his commitment to the word of God was a bright light shining in a dark world at that time. Luther was obviously uh, looking and trusting in the word of God. 2 Peter 1, 19 and 21 might have been on his mind along with 2 Timothy 3, 16 and others. Ultimately, it was the word of God that hatched the Reformation. 100 to 150 years before Martin Luther, courageous men stood like John Huss and John Wycliffe. They had battled to get the word of God into the hands of the people roughly 100 years before. Their courage had really lit the wick of the Reformation. But it was Luther, by God's grace, who really started the Reformation fires burning. All because of return to God's Word, sola scriptura. It is the same today. It's our hope that a revival will be found in the evangelical church, and it will come through a commitment to the Word of God. The thousands of distractions our world offers has led us away from the very thing that we need, which is the Word of God. It's so interesting over time, how from the Reformation, the darkness was dominant because the Word of God was kept from the people. And so there was this need for a Reformation. 
because the people weren't reading the Bible. It was only in Latin, and only the priests could read it, and many of them didn't even know what it meant. So the Word of God was kept, and there was a great need for a revival and having the Word of God put into the people's hands. I would suggest today we have the same problem. But the interesting thing is, is everybody has one. Everybody has a Bible. We have plenty of Bibles. But the new way that darkness dominates in our society is, is that we're bombarded with a denial of truth. One, that there is no truth. And two, that there's an overwhelming amount of distractions. So many things are sent our way that tell us that these are good things to do and read and put your attention to, that the Bible has become the least read book probably by many people. We need a revival of Bible study. We need it to start with us. We need more people committed to the truth of God revealed in the Word of God. Today we'll look at our passage and we'll see that there's a contrast between the saved person's commitment to the Word of God versus the false teachers who were leading other believers astray with their false teaching and ultimately a denial of the Word of God. Check with me. We will learn it all comes down to what we do with the Word of God. What are we doing with the speaker? That will be... Turn it down a little bit, please. I feel like I'm hearing everything. Now I don't hear anything. <laughs> Do y'all hear anything? Okay, now we hear a little bit. There we go. All right, so we will learn it comes down to what we do with the Word of God. Last week we examined the two features of the Apostle Peter. We saw that he was a determined shepherd, right? We saw that in verses 12 to 15 of chapter 1. Then we saw that he was an accurate eyewitness of the glory of Jesus, found in verses 16 to 18. This week, we're going to see that Peter's commitment to the divine revelation of God in the Scriptures is what he was all about. Peter was an eyewitness of Jesus in his majestic glory. This happened at the transfiguration, remember? He talks about it in, in verses 16 to 18. This was a preview of Jesus' second coming and the glory at his return. When Peter saw Moses and Elijah and Jesus on the mountain and he was glorified, the Father revealed Jesus' divine sonship. And Peter explained that he saw Jesus in his coming glory ahead of time. He got a glimpse of the glory to come. And he speaks of this in the transfiguration and testifies. Today we learn that the transfiguration was a confirmation of the previous prophecies in the Old Testament. That the Old Testament talked about a time when the Messiah would come in all glory and all of his enemies would be put at his footstool and they would become his footstool. Peter himself, himself is a stark contrast to the false teachers who were denying the second coming of Christ. And so he confronts them at the end of chapter 1 saying, look, the truth of the Scriptures is still there. We hang on to the Scriptures. And then in chapter 2 he begins to confront those that deny it. What we'll see is what we do with the Word of God reveals where we are in relationship to God. 
What we do with the Word of God reveals where we are in relationship to God. Spirit-indwelt believers love and embrace the Word of God. False teachers, on the other hand, distort the Word of God and introduce false doctrines. That's the clear division. So let's look at what a proper and an improper use of the Word of God is. Let's start with the proper use of the Word of God. Look in verse 19. The proper use of the Word of God. Look at verse 19. So, we have the prophetic Word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. To understand this passage best, I'm, I'm going to ask and answer questions of the text. I think it's the easiest way to explain it for you. So the first question we'll ask and answer is this. What is made more certain? What is made more certain? In the verse we see it. We have the prophetic word made more sure. This was a reference to the Old Testament scriptures pointing back to what the prophets had said previously in the Old Testament, most likely all of the Old Testament. The Word of God is reliable, but the events of Jesus' first coming, and especially, as we'll see, the transfiguration, confirmed the reliability of the Old Testament. Turn with me over to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. Remembering the transfiguration in your mind, where the Father says, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. Remember, a glimpse of the glory of Jesus to come. The Psalms even talked about, and the, the prophets talked about Jesus coming. In Psalm chapter 2, it states this in verse 6, But as for me, I have installed my King upon Zion, my holy mountain. And I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give you, or give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. This is an interesting psalm. It's pointing forward to who? Jesus. Jesus Christ. Now here's the interesting thing is, has this happened? No, it has not happened. The very ends of the earth, as your possession, they shall bright, you shall break them with a rod of iron. When he came in his first time, what happened? He died. They killed him. But Jesus showed him a glimpse of this glory to come that will come. These prophecies will happen. How do we know? It's made sure by the transfiguration that Peter had seen. He saw a glimpse of the glory to come, of Jesus to come. The power and glory will come. So the prophetic words of the Old Testament prophets are made sure by the first coming. Because at the first coming, we saw glimpses of other prophecies fulfilled and glimpses of what was going to happen when he returned. Notice the second question. What events, turn back to 2 Peter, what events confirm the prophetic word? Again, I mentioned it, but let's see. What events confirm the, second, the prophetic word? 
Well, specifically in our passage, the context is the transfiguration mentioned in the previous verses. One commentator stated it this way, The prophetic word of Scripture is made more sure by the transfiguration. For the transfiguration confirms the proper interpretation of the Old Testament Scriptures. That is, that there is a future coming of Christ for judgment and salvation. So when Jesus showed His glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, remember, He said, I'm going to show you a glimpse of the kingdom. Some of you will see it before you die. Well, He got a glimpse. And they got a glimpse. Peter, James, and John saw a glimpse of the glory to come. And so, what's this do? It says, the Word of God, the Old Testament Word of God, these prophets, they are true. This is reliable. The Old Testament Scripture is truth. It's going to happen. Christ will come in judgment and salvation. Second Peter, look at it, 1, 17 and 18. This is the transfiguration that he references. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Doesn't that sound like Second or Psalm 2? This is my Son. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Again, the transfiguration is something that's often thought of, oh, wow, that's a neat little event. But it was a profound event for Peter. He's like, oh, this is what the glory of God's going to look like when Christ returns. He got a small little glimpse. And this is what Peter's referencing. Remember the false teachers Peter was dealing with were most likely going to, or were denying the second coming of Christ. And I believe in some ways this is what happens today too. When people get so wrapped up in a false teaching they say, oh Jesus isn't really coming back. This is the way it is. You just need to learn to live with what God's established. And they deny Christ's return. But the prophets were confirmed by the tra transfiguration. Second Peter 2 or Second Peter 1.19, so we have the prophetic were made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention to. So, what did the prophetic word of prophesy concerning? It was the power and coming of Christ Jesus, our Lord, that He was going to return. One sixteen states this, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember last week we talked about that, right? That this is what he was talking about. The power and coming of Christ. He's coming back. And how do we know that he's coming back? Because the transfiguration gave us a glimpse of what was going to come. And then he turns around in this passage and he says what? That prophetic word that Jesus is coming is true. And it's true because of what I saw. We know it's verified and it's confirmed. God's word is true. The false teachers denied this, but the day of the Lord is coming, beloved. Jesus will return. I know it. It's a fact. How do I know? Because the Word of God says it. The Old Testament and the New Testament all say it. The next question to answer is, so what should be our response to this sure prophetic word? 
What should be our response? Well, it says it in our passage. If we look back, it says it, that it, we do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. We must pay heed to the Word of God. We must study the Word of God. We must understand the Word of God. We must take it at what it is, which is what? God's truth. It's His Word. This is the heart of Peter's message for the whole church. How do they, how is godly living and holiness produced? It's through a true knowledge of Him, which is found where? In the Word. How do we survive and not fall off into traps of false teachers? It's through the what? The Word of God. As we pay attention to the Word of God, and by the way, this is calling us to look at prophetic passages too. Listen closely. I've heard this one. I've heard this one even from some of us in the church. Pan-millennialist. You know what a pan-millennialist is? It'll all pan out in the end. Well, it doesn't appear the Bible tells us to think that way about the return of Christ. Now you say, well, I can't really figure it out. Is it pre-mill, ah-mill, or post-mill? Well, I'll tell you this. You ought to make it your job to try to figure it out. Why? Because it is the Bible. And we are supposed to study it. That's a fact. And he does say, pay attention to the prophetic word. So what should we do? Pay attention to the prophetic word. Not just write it off as, oh, eschatology is too hard. I can't get that. Let that one go. Not going to study that one at all. It does make up approximately one-third of the Bible. Are you going to throw out a third of the Bible because it does, it's not easy to understand? I think we need to study it. What do you think? It may take diligence, but it's what we got to do. The second coming of Christ is a reality, and he tells us to pay attention to the prophetic word of God. We do well to pay attention to the scriptures. So the next question, what is the prophetic word compared to? Well, it's compared to this, as to a lamp shining in a dark place. A lamp shining in a dark place. The prophetic word gives us guidance and hope while we live in this dark world before the Lord's return. I find it very interesting, and I was thinking on this. The, what was the problem of the false teachers? They had two main things. They introduced false doctrines, and two, they promoted licentious living, that you could do whatever you want, antinomianism. But ultimately, it's all tied to a wrong view of God's return. <laughs> Of Christ's return. If you don't believe He's coming back, then what does that mean? You can live however you want to live. That's very important. Studying and understanding that Christ is going to come back and judge the world will help us have a lamp to our way that will keep us out of darkness. I was talking to a dear friend recently. We were talking about somebody that had passed away that was a dear friend of ours way back 30 years ago. And the person said to me, uh, well, at least that person's in, in, at peace now and in heaven. Well, 
beloved, the, the person that my friend was talking about lived a life completely separated from God. There was absolutely no evidence at all. That she, the husband she was married to was somebody that she had met at church with another person. And they had taken each other away from their spouses and married at church and become married. And they had never shown any repentance at all of that. And I love this dear person, but the problem is what? We want to think the best of everybody that dies. We want to think they're all going to where? Heaven. But the problem is, is we have a wrong view that Jesus is coming. He's a just God. And that truth is true. That there is only one way to heaven. It's through Christ Jesus. And it requires a repentant life that turns to Christ from sin. I think way too much. We live in a world that thinks that Everything's going to remain the way it is and just think the best. That's what the false teachers taught. They taught that everything's going to be okay. You can do what you want to do. Jesus isn't really going to return. But he's going to come back. Beloved, does that bring a little bit of reverential fear to your soul? I hope so. I hope so. I'm not telling you to walk around in this, oh, woe is me, life is horrible. No, but it should wake us up, shouldn't it? It should call us to evangelize our neighbors and our friends and call them to repent of their sin and trust in Christ. And if somebody says, hey, I'm a believer and their life doesn't reflect anything of the gospel then it should call us to what? Bring it up to them. Because we love them. Don't let them get sucked away by the false teachers of today that are saying the same lies, aren't they? We were talking about it in Sunday school. I think the Roman Catholic Church has flipped on us. They've gone from legalism, pharisaical, works righteousness to more of an antinomian concept. That now they say you can believe and say and do whatever you want and you are still got a chance at heaven. Might have to pay for it a little bit in purgatory. But as a whole, what have they done? They're still false teachers. They're still calling people and causing people to miss the truth. Oh, beloved, listen to me. We pay, it does us well to pay attention to the Scriptures. We've got to take this serious. It's a lamp shining in a dark place. We need the Bible. We need it all the time. As Psalm 119, 105, it sounds just like it. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Is it? Or is Facebook? Hopefully not, right? Because it's definitely not a lamp to our path, is it? Most of social media is leading us away from the Lord. 
another question that this passage, I know I'm, I'm, I'm hammering this drum, but I think this is what he's getting at. As he transitions into chapter 2, this is his whole point. What you do with the Bible determines whether you're going after the false teachers or you're going the right way. That's the point. How long should we pay attention to the prophetic word? Look at the passage. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. How long should we pay attention to the scriptures? Until the day dawns. And I think he's referencing here the coming of the Lord that he's already talked about. Until Christ returns, we should pay attention to the scriptures. We've got to stay in them. 500 years after the Reformation, and it seems as though we're falling off the things, the way, on the other direction. What do we need? A revival in the Scriptures. We need more of this. We need it in the morning. We need it at noonday. We need it in the evening. I know you're saying, uh-oh, here he comes again. He's going to ask another question. How many of you read your Bible five times last week? Three weeks in a row, I've said it. Hopefully, we're starting to read our Bibles. If not, please start reading your Bibles. We need more time in it, don't we? Not just 15 minutes either. I had somebody was telling me, man, I have a hard time reading the Bible because I get up real early in the morning I said, I understand, but man, you need to fight for it. And he said, I said, so do you, do, you, do you listen to anything? Oh, yeah, all the way to work. I listen to all kinds of sermons all the time. Oh, I said, well, that works. That's good. You are doing something. You're in the Word of God. Good. So again, it's not just read. You should read. But put the Word of God in your mind as much as you can. Listen to sermons. Listen to good music. Solid music that what? Quote scripture, not just seven verses said 11 times over. Not the 7-11 process, right? <laughs> we need the real scriptures. Put it in your mind. Seven words said 11 times over or something like that. We need scripture. And we need it until the day dawns. till Christ returns and the morning star arises in your heart. And I would suggest that that's the glory that's going to happen for all of us when we see Christ. And we're with Him. That day when our sinful bodies go away and all of us, what? Rejoice and worship Him perfectly. He is the morning star. And then seventh, why should we value this prophetic word so much? There's a twofold reason given here in this passage of why we should value the Word of God so much. First, prophecy is not a product of the interpreters. Prophecy is not a product of the interpreters. Notice in verse 20, it states, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. No prophecy of Scripture came about by one's own interpretation. Again, quoting from one of my favorite commentators on this is, Schreiner, he states, Peter likely was attacking the opponents, arguing that their interpreted prophecy to support their own views. In doing so, they resisted the proper interpretation given by the apostles. 
Presumably, the opponents interpreted the Scriptures in such a way that the return of Christ is denied and proceeded to argue that history will go on as it always has. Boy, we hear that today, don't we? Everything's just going to keep going the way it is. It's just the way it is. Christ isn't returning. The interpretation does not, beloved, determine the truthfulness of a passage. Hear me, I'm going to say that again. Listen closely. The interpretation does not determine the truthfulness of a passage. Did you hear me? It's the original meaning that guarantees the, the truthfulness of a passage. Whether I interpret it right or wrong doesn't mean make this true. It's true because God wrote it through men. My interpretation could be completely whacked out. But that doesn't make this wrong. It makes me wrong. This is where false teachers miss it. The author's original intent is the meaning God intended. That's why y'all all have to be good Bereans. You might look at this and go, hmm, I don't know if that's what it meant, Pastor Mike. Fine. You can ask that question, but you better do the study to find out. I want you to check me. Do you hear me? Check me. I'm good with that. But when you say, check me, check it. Study it. Read it. Find out whether what I'm saying about the transfiguration and all that fit, and that's what he meant. You need to find that out. You should check everybody. This is what we seek to know and understand, the original intent of the passage. Because everybody has an interpretation, right? They're out there all the time. Aren't you getting bombarded with interpretations of the Bible? There are a lot of people that stand up in pulpits around America that says, Thus saith the Lord. This is what God says. And then when you check what they say, that's not what the passage even meant. You have a responsibility, beloved. Everybody in this room, you have a responsibility to check what I say and see if what I'm saying is what the original intent was. I think we have gotten into the real lazy habit of just saying whatever a man says up in the pulpit is right. Or we go to the other extreme, which is, well, everybody has an opinion. It might be true or it might not. Which is what? Postmodernism. That's the problem. No truth or all truths are relative. We value the Word of God because it's God's Word, not because it's flexible to any and every interpretation. I think to a degree we're having the same problem with the Constitution, beloved, in our country. And I think it... Look, I'm not going to get into politics here, but I want you to understand something. It's a sign of our time that a document written that a document written 200 years ago might not mean what it means today. It's a living document that changes. Beloved, that's the problem with the Bible. The people think that the Bible changes its meaning. It doesn't change. It's the same original meaning that what the author said when they first wrote it down. And it's our job in this room to figure out what they meant when they said it. And then, and then apply it properly to our lives. 
in our culture where even history is being rewritten too, right? The Word of God stands forever. This is truth. And though many of the things that are said in the Word may really push against what we think, we've got to go with what it says. For example, you know, the whole feminism issue and roles in the home. Boy, does that go contrary to everything. What's going to happen when we do things like this gender identity 10, 20 years from now? We won't be able to see a man is a man and a woman is a woman. But the Bible says it that way. So is the Bible now not true? Or is it changed because our culture says that a woman's not necessarily what a woman is. She can be whatever she wants to be. Beloved, we can't do that. We have to find out what the original intent of it is and stick with it, don't we? The false teachers are coming after us. They will do it in any way they can. The second reason we see in this passage is prophecy is a product of God through the Holy Spirit. Look at that. It says it real clear. But... Prophecy was made, and that's I added that so that you see that it's linked to the previous verse. But prophecy was made by men moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. What is this? What is this? This is an amazing book that God worked through to write. You ask me, why do I really believe that the Bible is really all you need to live a life of godliness? It's because it's God's Word. It's perfect. God wrote it through men. Now, I know He worked through men, and He worked through their personalities, and He worked through their grammar and their cultural background, but He did it in a way, this passage says it, perfectly, that there are no errors in it. It is a beautiful book that has no mistakes This is so important, beloved. Why is the Word of God so valuable? Because God supernaturally wrote it. He used men to write this down. The Holy Spirit is the ultimate author of the Bible. Does everybody agree? Do you understand? It was God that wrote this book. Yes, they, He used men. But God used prophets to write perfectly a document of truth. The value of the Word of God is why people died during the days of the Reformation. They died because they were preaching it, and they were lifting it up, and they were exalting the Christ that was revealed in the Word of God. There's a picture of a guy, John Hooper, martyr of the Bishop of Gloucester, stated in one of his articles of faith, this is what he stated, listen to this. In 1555, around that time, quote, I believe that the Word of God is of a far greater authority than the church, that the which word only do sufficiently show and teach us all those things that in any wise concern our salvation, both what we ought to do and what to leave undone. He goes on, the same Word of God is the true pattern and perfect rule after the which all faithful people ought to govern and 
order their lives without turning either to the right hand or the left hand, without changing anything thereof, without putting to it and taking from it, knowing that all the works of God are perfect, but most chiefly His Word. It's perfect, end quote. It was this commitment to the truth that cost Hooper his life. On Saturday morning, February 9th, 1555, he was burned at the stake for his commitment to the Word of God and the Lord Jesus. This is the kind of commitment we need to the Word of God. This is what we need, all of us. As I read about his agonizing death, they kept calling out, hey, just recant. Just recant. Just say you didn't do it. You don't believe that. That the church's word is, to, is the same. That when the Pope speaks, he's speaking the word of God too. Just say these things. For 45 minutes, they could not get him to die. They kept going out and he would, it, the, the flames would burn out and he would just be roasted. Portions of his body. He could not. So they kept stoking it three times. And all he did was say, Into your hands I commit my spirit to the Lord. This is the kind of commitment we need to the Word of God. We can't even get up five minutes early to read the Bible. Right? Do you, see, do you see the tension in our souls? This is why our country and our, the evangelical church is in such a mess. We're not reading the Bible. We're not spending time in the Word. We don't know it. We don't apply it. We don't live it. The Scriptures are authoritative, sufficient, infallible, inerrant, and 100% true. So what is the proper use of the Word of God? Depend upon it because it's reliable. Be diligent to pay attention to it because it's a bright light in a dark world. Stay in it until the prophecies and promises are fulfilled and enjoy Christ. And finally, seek to know its original meaning and then stand firm on it. This is the truth. We must stand for it. Are you with me, beloved? So now we move on to the contrast. Look at it. Chapter 2, verse 1. The contrast. The improper use of the Word of God. The improper use of the Word of God. And here they are. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Peter contrasts the apostles' commitment to the Scriptures with the false teachers of his day. He's going to show the dramatic contrast, but false teachers, false prophets. 
Peter's first point here is, is that the false teachers of their day are just like the false prophets of what? The Old Testament day. It was, it's always been the same. That from the beginning of, the t- of time, or from the beginning, there have been false teachers that have come up to what? Distract people and lead people away from God. He says, but false prophets arose among the people, just as there are also false teachers among you. Beloved, some people struggle, and I want you to listen closely. When we begin to call out false teachers in our church, when we begin to say or even name a name occasionally, they struggle. Now, why do they struggle? Well, the reason the struggle can sometimes be a a, a noble reason for struggling. It, It can be a good reason for struggling. What I mean by this is they might think, well, we need to be kind. We need to think the best of people. We should always give them the benefit of the doubt, right? That's Some of us in the room are probably even thinking that. Okay, so if I call out Joel Osteen or Benny Hinn, are you, are you being unkind? Are you, are you being not thinking the best of him? Listen to me, beloved. That has absolutely nothing to do with it. There is a time to call out false teachers because why? Because we love the sheep. Because we love you. We don't want you to go down the road of Sarah Young and then Jesus calling. We don't want you to go down that road. We want you to think that this is the sufficient word of God. That this is what it's about. If I don't do that, I'm actually not loving you. Do you understand that? The Bible is very clear. Peter does it. You know, I was thinking back and just in my own meditations and and looking over the scriptures, how many of the epistles mention false teachers? I could only think of one that didn't. Only one of the epistles doesn't. (laughs) The only one I could think, and y'all are going to go look it up if I tell you the name and you'll find it in there somewhere. At least from the outside, it could have been inside, but... The whole point is is that every New Testament epistle is warning of this. Then you go to Revelation chapter 2 and 3 where Jesus directly addresses the churches and what's he do? He warns of false teachers. False teachers are there. And five out of the seven churches. Do you think this is a problem? Yes, it is. It's a problem today. The enemy has two approaches to attack the church. One, to attack the believer through persecution and martyrdom. He attacks them by trying to get them to be afraid to therefore, what, give up. That's one attack. If you look back over the Old Testament and your New Testament time and the early days of the church, and even today, that's a method he uses. He tries to get people to be so afraid that they, what, recant and give up. But the second method... And it's the one I think he uses the most. Is he attacks, he attacks the believers through deception and false teachers within the church. That is one of the primary methods that he uses. Peter had dealt with the persecution method in 1 Peter. Now in 2 Peter, he's going to the second one. 
Now think about this. If you're Peter and you're at the end of your life and you're going to write two letters, what are you going to warn about? Persecution and false teachers. That's what he's doing. He deals with that second method of attack, the deception of false teachers. Peter references the problem of false prophets in the Old Testament. You can read them everywhere throughout the Old Testament. So the false teachers were like the false prophets of the Old Testament. Second, the false teachers secretly initiated devastating doctrines. Look at this passage. Who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. This warning, doesn't it sound just like Paul in Ephesians chapter 20 when he talks to the elders and he says what? Be on, your, on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which is purchased with his blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things. Destructive heresies, same thing. To draw away the disciples after them. Oh, friends, listen to me. This is what they're all about. They're all about getting us off track of the gospel. They want us away from... They want us to deny the master who bought us. They want us to deny who? Christ Jesus the Lord. Now, what's very interesting about this is he does say even denying the master who bought them. And I don't think he's saying that these people are saved. And I don't think he's talking a whole bunch about the atonement either. So don't get all bent out of shape if you're wondering about this. I think his point is this. The false teachers were where? They were in the church. <laughs> they were in the church. And what did they look like? And what did everybody think they were? Christians. They thought they were Christians. And therefore, they were saying what? It's about what you do. Or what you know, if you have this special knowledge or whatever. And it's not about who? Christ. They're denying the one who bought the Christian. In a general sense is what he's talking about. Peter described the false teachers as believers because they made a profession of faith and gave every appearance initially of being genuine believers. Just like the Roman Catholics did. The destructive heresies over the years eventually caused them to deny who? Jesus Christ. Do you understand? They deny the saving power of Christ. That He is the only Redeemer. You know, there's a perfect illustration of this. And it comes in the most subtle ways. Y'all know what the Vulgate is. Who knows what the Vulgate is? Okay, the Vulgate is the Latin... Translation of what? The Greek and of the Bible, right? The Latin version, the Vulgate. It was written by a man named Jerome. Okay? He wrote this, and when he did his translation, he made one little subtle shift in the translation. Just a really subtle one. He picked one Latin word, had a very important spot, and it became the foundation of a huge wrong doctrine. He wrote this back in 380. 380. That's a long time before the Reformation. 
You understand, that's a long time of heresy. You know what it was? It was changing the word repentance, the word that would best translate for repentance, to a word that says penance. Penance. When Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, you would better translate it with the Latin Vulgate, do penance, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What is penance? Works. Do the right thing. Mourn over your sorrow or your sin. Make yourself feel really bad. Cry and weep and mourn. Then maybe God will accept you. Do penance for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's heretical. Heretical. But that subtle shift in just two verses becomes a huge foundation of their works righteousness doctrine. A destructive heresy. Why do people follow these people? Why do they fall into this false teaching? Why do they do it? Look at verses 2 and 3. Why do people follow false teachers? Answer, many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. What attracts people to these false teachers is that they advocate a licentious, licentious lifestyle. And therefore, many people are too, only too glad to follow their example, state Schreiner. What's the point? Oh, this is so, so, so real. Back in the early days, before the Reformation, people, they controlled the people by their desire to look good on the outside. If I can clean myself on the outside, I can control these people. So they controlled people by legalism. By clean yourself on the outside. Pay this indulgence. If you pay this indulgence, I'll get your friend out of purgatory. Do you understand? It's all about doing works and deeds. Now what is the attack? But it still was a way to what? Your, your friend could live... A really bad life all their life. They could be a totally horrible person. But if you pay this indulgence, what do you do? You get them out of hell. What is that? Heresy. But what are they doing? They're appealing to the people's sensuality and their desire to be kind. And they want their people to be able to do whatever they want to do. Today, it's the same way. What's the Pope done? Somebody mentioned it in Sunday school. He's already come out and said what? That it's okay. If you're a homosexual, it's all right. You can have that lifestyle. Live that way. You can still be saved. Living in that lifestyle. Not to mention that Mormons and uh, Muslims and everybody else can go to heaven too. What is that? That's a denial of the master who bought us. Beloved, these things are important. So does God sleep on their wickedness? No. As we'll see in the upcoming weeks and months, their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. 
Is God going to just turn the other way and say, come on in, everything's fine, you can teach this false teaching if you want. What's he going to do? No, he's going to judge them. Is he just going to let it go? No. So, beloved, what should we do? What should be our response? We need to take the Word of God serious. We really do. We need to know this book. We need to understand this book. We need to teach this book. We need to stand for the truth, even if it means doing some of the things like what Hooper went through. We need to stand firm, beloved. Now, my question is, is how do we do this? How in the world? Anybody ever fear when somebody comes and you don't want to really talk to them? <laughs> and you're afraid to speak and they're, uh-oh, I'm going to have to tell them that they're in sin. You think, uh-oh, this is not going to be pretty. And you look for that door out. Anybody? You know what we need at that moment? A better view of God. We need grace. We need to know just how serious this is. Beloved, this is what started the Reformation. People got a glimpse of the glory of God in the face of Christ through the Scriptures by the grace of God, and they stood up and they said, No, that's false. Christ is the way. We need that. We need that boldness. Let's pray for it. Let's pray. Father, please help us. Sometimes we are wimps. Sometimes we are afraid to stand up and say, Christ Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. Help us, Father. Give us courage. Give us boldness. Help us to study the Word of God and know the truth. Help us, Father, to see in our own hearts, to evaluate our own hearts where we are uh, afraid of man or seeking men's approval. Please, Lord, help us to repent of that sin and trust in you. Father, I know this is a hard message, but I pray that the people in this church will all stand up. We will all stand up for the word of God, that we will be faithful to you till the end, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. We long for that day. We look forward to that day, and we ask that you help us to proclaim him until that day. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.